I want to think rightly about God so I can live rightly for Him, and I hope that's true of you too. Uh, and, and that is prayer. Uh, that's something that I have been thinking about a lot in my life. And really, the first time I thought about really needing to be more biblical, and what I mean by that is a lot of times we learn things as Christians, uh, not so deliberately and intentionally, so much as we get socialized into them, yeah? We just maybe you became a Christian and you get surrounded by believers, and you learn to pray, good, bad, or otherwise, based on what other people were doing. We get little instruction about what makes prayer biblical or not. And, and for me, that was kind of the case. Uh, and, and I know the first time I really started thinking about, I need to be more thoughtful and more biblical, or at least allow Scripture to inform my prayer life, was in January of 1990. Now, I know it with such specificity because I remember reading it in my journal uh, when I was a Bible smuggler into, uh, into communist China. Uh, and, and, you know, I was a young man at the time, very excited to do things for God, to steward my life well, and I find myself working for an organization called Open Doors, who primarily their, their, their endeavor is to bring Bibles, among other Christian resources, into to brothers and sisters in the persecuted church, which, if you didn't know, is more than 50% of the country's on this globe, the, it, the church is persecuted. And so I found myself working with them, and it was an exciting time. It was just an just a, a energy of wanting to get God's Word to His people, and being a young man, just trying all kinds of things, being on my own in China, smuggling Bibles over the border. I would do things like try and jump out windows and kind of hide out, go outside the, the custom buildings to run across the border. I found service corridors that I'd follow, hoping they'd pop out on the other side. One time, I remember uh, wanting to be the all-American boy or teenager. I had my hair, it was about down, halfway down my, my back, so I braided it, tucked it down my shirt, put on a baseball cap and wore glasses, and then to boot, I had a sign made in Chinese that said, I'm deaf, please speak English. <laughs> so, granted, okay, I'm 19 on my own doing something illegal in a communist country, so cut me some slack. So, I hadn't thought through this entirely, but the point was so that the, the guards, the custom agents, and the soldiers that patrolled the borders would read that, and then I could ignore them when they called, over, called me over to inspect my backpack, and I could just keep walking and make a run for the border. Uh, needless to say, very few of those things worked. Um, about a week into my time, however, because by, they know there's oftentimes brothers and sisters, men and women, smuggling Bibles and, and correspondence between churches to, so the churches can communicate. And so they're aware that we're doing this, and so they kind of know, they're on the lookout for us. You don't hear about that much, but that's the reality in, these, in many of these closed countries. And so I remember a week into it, waking up into my room, in my room in Hong Kong, and at that time it's still a British Commonwealth, so we were okay. And I woke up to the sound of, uh, I shared this room with three other men, very small, cramped quarters. There was only room for our bunks, and you could jump out of your bunk and dress, and that was it. But I woke up hearing these men praying. And it wasn't just, just prayer. I mean, these guys were, it was desperate, fervent prayer. And later that morning, we were sitting in the common room drinking coffee, and one of the older, more seasoned men had took me aside and says, look, it is not wrong to come up with creative ways and try daring schemes to get to the border. As a matter of fact, uh, some of my antics were the answers to their prayers as I caused so much commotion that the guards were focused on me, and they made it through the borders, right? They said it was rather just the age-old issue of dependency. 
was I dependent on my creativity and my schemes or upon God's sovereignty to, to affect His purposes in this situation? And in large part, that was going to be reflected in not only the content and, or, and commitment of my prayers or lack thereof. I remember writing in my journal that I really had to think more about how I think about prayer in my life. Well, it's been 26 years, and that's something I still find myself having to think about. And chances are, if you're a Christian and you are one of the, probably one of those who, unless you're just the gift for you is prayer, prayer is probably a struggle for you as well. So I'm going to share a little bit of kind of practical how-tos of the things that I do that help me pray, because whatever I do maybe will be helpful to you, or at least prime the prompt for you to think about, how do I pray in a way that honors God in 2017 a little bit more? But what I want to do for this morning is I want to share with you what that man shared with me that morning in January of 1990 in Hong Kong. What he did was he took me to Scripture. And he just, he showed to me, as we looked at so often Paul's prayers in the New Testament, said, look, the Bible doesn't just tell us to pray, it teaches us to pray. And we looked at the way Paul prayed, and he asked me, am I praying the way Paul prayed? Am I praying the way James prayed? Am I praying the way Christ prayed? And I had to be honest, I hadn't even really thought about that. I just kind of prayed. And realizing that, boy, when you look at Paul's prayers in particular, there's, he's often praying in his epistles, they follow a general kind of guideline that I thought was so helpful. And so this morning, I want us to be discipled by Paul. I want us to look at just one of his many prayers to see how Paul approached this wonderful privilege and task of praying. So if you have a Bible this morning, flip it open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 as we dive into Paul's prayers. And, and you're going to see in these five verses, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verses 9 through 13, I think it's page 987 in your pew Bibles in front of you if you don't have your own we're going to see a biblical framework of prayer that almost consistently you'll see in any prayer of Paul. So we could have picked many of his prayers. I chose 1 Thessalonians 3. Number one, we're going to see that his prayers are filled with a, a deep gratitude to God for God's work in his people. We're going to see that his prayer informs and fuels his service and finally, the end goal of prayer is the sanctification of God's people. Those are the three points that we see oftentimes in Paul's prayers. Let's look at the first one, verse 9. I'll read it to you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 9. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. Okay, stop just there in verse 9. This is, by the way, in these three chapters, the third time that Paul erupts into thanksgiving to God and thanksgiving to God with them and for them. We see it in chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 2, verse 13, and then chapter 3 here in verse 9. Paul is thankful to God for them in such a way that encourages these Thessalonians. Now, on the one hand, Paul is rejoicing to hear that they are remaining faithful to the Lord, but Paul also is giving thanks that shows he is aware that God is powerfully working in these Thessalonians. He's working in them and among these new converts that enables them to remain in the faith. 
So it's this dual thing where he's, thank, he's so thankful that they're remaining in the faith, but the fact that he's acknowledging that it's God doing it, he gives glory to God that it's God himself that's allowing these young converts, these new converts, to remain in the faith. Now perhaps it was this very church at Thessalonica, in this situation, that bolstered Paul's confidence and faith to say later to the Philippian church, in that verse that so many of us are familiar with, Philippians 1.6, that it God who began a work is the same God that will continue that transformation and bring it to completion because he saw it happening in the Thessalonian church. Now, Paul was responsible for planting that church in his first missionary journey and was abruptly taken away, and it grieved him so much. If you read Thessalonians, you can see him talking about his grief being stripped from them at sending Timothy to encourage them, but being amazed that even though his ministry was cut short, they flourished and thrived. And not only did they flourish and thrive in their own faith, through them, it began to spread so that the whole Macedonian area knew of the gospel because of these young, new converts. We see that in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 of 1 Thessalonians. In short, Paul is encouraging these Christians by thanking God for God's grace in their lives. Don Carson says this about this passage, more precisely, Paul encourages Christians by telling them that he thanks God for His grace in their lives. Thus, he has simultaneously drawn attention to the Thessalonians' spiritual growth, thereby encouraging them, and insisted that God is the one to be thanked for it, thereby humbling them. There is simply no way that these Christians can thoughtfully listen to what Paul says and then smugly pat themselves on the back. God and God alone is to be praised for the signs of grace in their lives. Now imagine how powerful and encouraging it would be if each one of us made it a practice to thank God for others in this congregation, in your life, and then tell these people what we're thankful to God about them. Imagine that. Imagine if in 2017, one of your, if you're a resolution maker, one of your resolutions would be to genuinely thank God for the people in this church, for the people in your community group, for the people in your Bible study, and then to follow up and tell them what you are genuinely thankful for. When was the last time you genuinely expressed deep gratitude for someone? You know, our culture is so used to maybe the flippant or obligatory thanks that we, it just kind of rolls off of our back like water off a duck's back. But when was the last time you actually looked someone in the eye and said, you know what? your example of fighting sin has been an encouragement to me. I want to thank you for the way you are pursuing holiness in your life. I want to thank you for living such a godly, exemplary life in front of my kids. I praise God that I'm not in this fight alone, but I'm surrounded by men and women like you. Here's what I've been seeing in your life that has been a challenge and an encouragement to me. How genuinely edifying that would be 
how genuinely awkward it might be in our culture. If someone were to do that to you, what would be your first thought? What do you want from me, right? We're not used to that kind of deep, genuine gratitude, so much so that it actually might take some work. It might seem awkward at first, but we see Paul modeling this for us as he thanks God for what he's doing amongst the Thessalonians and then writes to him and says, you have been such an encouragement to me that the whole gospel is being known throughout Macedonia in spite of your difficult situations. So the first thing is that Paul's prayer shows us that there's this deep gratitude to God for His working amongst people. The second part of this biblical framework is in verses 10 and 11. Paul shows us that our prayers ought to inform and fuel our service. Verse 10, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face, here it is, and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. Let's be honest here for a moment, as if we're not honest when we're doing this, right? But let's… Have you ever prayed with somebody, uh, and, and as you're praying, you have either not even thought that maybe God might want to use you in that situation you're praying about, to help bring what might be lacking in their faith, or maybe you've secretly thought, man, this situation's so tough, I ho- I'm glad I have no part in it because I wouldn't want to get involved in that. Sometimes that happens. I remember in my early 20s praying for my father. My father had left our family when I was about 18 years old. It's a long story, but he was living now in Michigan. I was living in California. And yet, as God softened my heart towards my father, I began to pray for his salvation. He wasn't a believer. And over months and months, long periods of time, God would soften my heart to the point of praying for my father to come to know the Lord, to the point of tears. And I remember one time, as my father was dying from cancer, I was praying so intensely that God would send one last time someone to preach the gospel to him, to say to, uh, to, say to a hard man the hard truths that needed to be said. And I remember feeling that God was going to answer that. I was weeping. I wanted it to happen. My father, we hadn't seen each other for quite some time, and quite frankly, that's the way both of us liked it. We never had a good relationship, and yet God was softening my heart towards him. Well, a couple weeks after I got I, that, that intense time of prayer, I got a phone call from a friend of mine. His name was Rick. He called me up and says, Rick. I said, hey, Rick, how are you doing? He says, I got great news. I'm getting married. I said, fantastic, and I want you to be in the wedding. That's great. Where are you now? I'm in Michigan. And I went, no, that is not, you did not understand me. When I asked you to send somebody, I meant send someone else to my dad. So, Rick, where in Michigan do you live? Oh, Flint. Just out of curiosity, Rick, how close is that to Sterling Heights? Because, you know, if it's two, three hours away, not a problem. Oh, Sterling Heights, that's about a 15-minute drive from here. At the time, I was driving a forklift. I didn't have much money. So, so I can genuinely say, Rick, I would love to be there with you, but I can't afford to take off work and buy the ticket and fly out there. I just can't do it. So thank you, but I'll send you guys a gift. And so I hung up, and I thought I was off the hook. Problem was, Rick was marrying a godly woman. And she said, well, we should pray about this. They prayed about it. He calls me 30 minutes later. 
great news, my fiance wants to buy her ticket out here. <laughs> now I have no legitimate reason not to go. I'll finish that story some other time, but the point simply is that Paul is not simply content to pray about something. He prays that he himself will be the one that supplies what is lacking in their faith. You see that in ten, the second half of verse 10, that he wants to supply what is lacking in their faith. There's this wonderful combination of mingling intercessory prayer with service. For Paul, prayer is not a substitute for his service. It's part of it. Paul was always concerned for believers, even if he never met them. You see that in Romans chapter 1, verse 11. He never met them, but he still wanted to impart to them some spiritual gift. And this mindset is for all of us. There is not one person in this church that can minister to all, but all of us together can minister to every one of us. The call here through Paul's prayer is that we would supply, seek to supply what is lacking in people's faith. Whether you're serving as, as our, one of our volunteer youth leaders here at Christ Community Church, or maybe you start a Bible study at your lunch hour at your workplace, or maybe you are serving one Saturday out of the month at some kind of shelter, or maybe you are writing a letter of encouragement to one of our missionaries and their families, or maybe you administer a word of rebuke to somebody who's careless with their speech, or maybe you publicly acknowledge someone for being such a Christ-like example but all of us together are involved in the work of supplying what is lacking in people's faith. You know, I'm going to let you in on a little pastoral secret. When pastors get together, they have kind of language they talk. How you, how's your church doing? By that they mean how many people you got going to your church, right? They have, they have ways of talking to each other. And one of them is that, so, so how are you reaching your community? How many outreach programs do you have? And when I get asked that question, I say, well, at Christ Community Church, I'm, I'm hoping we get 380 outreach programs. And two, I, get, I get this, wait, what? And, and then it kind of dawns on them. Oh, you, you don't mean programs. You mean the people in your church. I, yes, that's exactly right. I, I don't think we want programs and institutions doing the work of the body of Christ. We want to th see 380 outreach programs because we have 380 people who are out in the world. And I hope they're reaching the world. God did not, when, when He sent Christ, create an institution. He created an, a family. He didn't create programs. He made a people to reach the world. We don't want to let institutions and programs, good as they can be, to take the place of our personal responsibility to supply what is lacking in people's faith, and that can look 10,000 different ways. And all of them should be done with prayer, and according to Paul, praying will compel us to do them and more, both in our prayer and service, we aim and strive to supply what is lacking in people's faith. And even Paul himself, even though there were some obstacles to him now being able to do that for the Thessalonians, we see that in verse 11. Actually, in verse chapter 2, verse 18, Paul says, Satan is prohibiting me from coming to you. And here in chapter 3, but he's praying consistently, but God, make a way. Now, we don't know what, how Satan was prohibiting him from getting to the Thessalonians. We don't, those details aren't given to us. But we know Paul is praying and asking God, you know the situation, make a way that I can come to them. And so, at, at this point, I think it's important for we need to be aware of what are the 
obstacles that prevent us from praying the way Paul prays for God's people. And so I, I think this is helpful to know, that, to be aware of some of the things that in our culture that hinder us from prayer. So, so here's a couple of things, a couple of cultural obstacles that fight against a robust prayer life. Now, you may not struggle with these individually, but we all live and breathe this cultural air, and it does impact us. The first one is, uh, we don't live in a culture that values being still, do we? We don't live in a culture that values reflection, Sustained focus, contemplation. As a matter of fact, we live in a culture that elevates the multitasker, and it's to absurd degrees. Lori and I and the kids were in Santa Barbara, and on the drive home Thursday night, rush hour, it was like 6 o'clock, traffic, bumper to bumper, it was dark, we were over by UCLA on the 405, and she says, hey, Rick. Look over to the right. Look, look over to the right. The guy, in the, the guy driving the car next to us. And I'm not kidding you. He's driving in bumper-to-bumper traffic at night, and he's got his smartphone watching TV. We live in a culture that thinks that we can do everything. We're, we're kind of everywhere but nowhere. We're never where we need to be. We live in a culture that loves to say, or at least feels obligated to say, how busy we are. You ever listen in on conversations and hear someone say, man, I'm just, I'm just so busy? What do people typically say after that? Oh, man, I know what you mean. I am busy too. This is what I got going on. We almost feel like we have to say how maxed out we are, but we all don't like living that way. But you can't say, oh, you're busy? Oh, I got tons of time on my hand. Because <laughs> we equate that with that means you're lazy, you're not productive, you're not doing things. And so we can't say, oh, you're super busy? Well, you know, God's Word talks about Sabbath and rest and a way of moving through life that allows for margins so that when things happen in my life, I have time for that. We don't live in that world. You feel like you have to throw your schedule on the table and you all compete, right? So we live in a culture that values multitasking and just being busy but not reflecting and being still. Secondly, Add to that, the method of how we communicate today may be impacting our prayer lives. Think about it, friends. Text messages, instant messages, Facebook, Snapchat, tweets, email, snail mail, and then, yeah, phones. All of these things are conditioning us and shortens our attention spans. I mean, look at text messaging, right? We used to be uh, 140 characters. Now we don't even bother with that. It's all abbreviations. YOLO, LOL. What is that? I remember at my last church talking to a young man about committing himself to the ministries he should be a part of. I says, I want to, let's say his name was Ryan. I said, Ryan, tell me, what, what's going on? You need to commit. He's like, FOMO. I, I was like, I'm sorry, is that, did your doctor tell you that? Is that something that, is that a disease? Oh, fear of missing out. I mean, well, why don't you just tell me fear of, you have a fear of missing out and you don't want to commit? What does FOMO mean? Now, now we don't even do that. We don't even use acronyms. It's faces now, emoticons. And the point is, all these things that we look at in our life and don't think about are having a cumulative impact in the way we go through our lives. And it must impact the way we attend to prayer as well. All these things fight against that. Number three, this world of instant communication has shaped how our view of God must reply to our prayers. God should respond instantaneously, shouldn't he? You ever heard someone get frustrated because they emailed someone an hour ago and haven't heard back? So when we pray to God, how can we not think that that's got to be the way he responds to us too? 
makes us think that God should instantaneously respond. It makes us short-sighted and drives away any desire to be patient or to press in or press on in prayer. Nehemiah chapters 1 and 2, great example. He says he prayed every day for God to intervene. Every day, he says, I prayed for 100 days before he saw any activity on God's behalf. And all these things make developing a rich interior life, let alone a, a prayer life, almost impossible. And then fourth and finally, our last, our, our consuming interest in pop culture and all things that are trivial. Like, I, I, I love pop culture. It's a fun place to be. It's a fun place to visit, but it's a horrible place to live. It's like Disneyland, right? Yeah, go there once a year, but if you live there, you'd be neurotic, And if we live in a world where we're completely obsessed with pop culture and the trivial, do you not think that will impact the way you attend, the way you approach God and your spiritual walk? So these are just cultural barriers. Uh, These are things that are just happening around us. Now, if you're a type A, high D personality like me, here are some things I've done to help my prayer life in this culture that we live in. So, I have four things that they're kind of like, they're negative in that what I do not do or I recommend stopping. And the first one would be this, turn off your TV, especially if you're the kind of person, and I know I'm meddling here, right? I don't have a chapter and verse for this. I'm just giving you some wise, prudent wisdom from Scripture, I think, though. Turn off the TV, especially if you just use it for background noise. Just turn it off. Number two, reduce the multitasking of your life as much as you can. (coughs) Excuse me. The academic and popular research is coming out on this. Multitasking does not do us good. If you you doubt, read The Dumbest Generation by Mark Bowerlin. The subtitle, Striking, How the Digital Age Stupefies Our Youth and Endangers Our Future. The Dumbest Generation is what it's called. Striking, Mark Bowerlin. He's a sociologist, I think, at Indiana. Third, um, don't listen to the radio or music or podcasts during your whole commute. Now, I'm a big fan of podcasts. I'm a big fan of music. But be deliberate about that time you have in the car if you have a commute. Don't fill it up with stuff all the time. Have some quiet time. Be still. Reduce the cultural noise in your life. I mean, there's, that, that, there's, that, you have a thousand things in that category. You don't need 15 news apps on your smartphone or tablet. One or two will be fine. You don't need to keep checking your email. There's so many things we bring into our lives that just bring, it's cultural noise, and it prevents us from thinking clearly and thoroughly. And then lastly, on these negatives, fight the temptation of our culture to base your value on productivity. Fight the temptation of our culture to base your value on being busy and productive. That particularly is a struggle for me. Now, let's talk about some positive things, things to do. Those are some things not to do. Let's talk about some things to do. Here's one, meet weekly with someone to pray together or be a part of as many corporate prayer times as you can be, as you can find yourself in. Uh, every Sunday morning, our elders pray, and it's not uncommon for me to say, guys, I'm so glad that we do this every Sunday because I had a hard morning, or I feel distracted, or I'm not where I need to be this morning, and that time of corporate prayer is really helpful. 
We even, every Sunday, uh, Rick Martin, where are you? What time do we meet? There's people praying here. I thought I saw Rick. What time is it, Rick, that we pray? Okay, so 45 minutes before the service, people are gathering in the fireside room. Show up once, twice, every week, whatever it is, and pray, right? Be deliberate. And I encourage, find a prayer partner, right? There are seasons in my life I have that, uh, some, some that I don't. The reason prayer partners are good is if you're in a prayer gathering of more than five, it's easy to kind of fake the funk and not be tiled in and no one knows. But you can't do that when it's just you and somebody else, right? Find someone to pray with. Secondly, read and pray written prayers. You say, oh, no, 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 I can't do that. A prayer that's read is a prayer that's dead. That, that's nonsense. The book of Psalms, a lot of those are prayers. Pray them for yourself. The Puritan book, The Valley of Vision, those men and women knew how to pray, let me tell you. If you need to learn how to pray, read The Valley of Vision and pray those prayers. Third, uh, stop, telling your pe- stop telling people that you'll pray for them later because half the time you don't, let's be honest, stop and pray for them right then and there, right? You see this happen all the time. People ask you for prayer. I'll be honest, half the time I do forget. So I take the practice, okay, we're going to pray right here, right now. Let's do that. Get into the habit of that. Not only is it encouraging for that individual, it's encouraging for us as a body of believers. You can still ask me to pray for you. I will do my best to continue to pray for you. Number four, make effective use of the prelude portion of the service. Do you realize, we don't do this, not even in our church, and most churches don't do it anymore, but for those of you who have been in church for more than five decades, you remember what's called a prelude. A prelude was typically that time of service when you gathered, and someone is usually at an organ or something, and they're just playing quiet music. The point of the prelude what was to gather and prepare yourself to hear the Word of God proclaimed to make sure your heart was prepared to live an obedient life to Him. That's what that prelude section was for. Now, what it's become now is just a time to chit-chat and talk and show us announcements. Hey, I get that. Things change. My point is simply this. If you show up for church and you're like running late and you just scurried in here, you've you've missed not just those few minutes, you've missed probably half of the service because it takes you that long just to dial in and just to be prepared to what's going on right? This, this is not a rebuke. As much as it is learning from past generations, they would show up for church and have that prelude to prepare themselves. If you're showing up late and sitting in, finding a seat late, you've already missed half the service. I don't mean time-wise, but in terms of dialing in and being present, you've already missed half of it. Show up early. Take advantage of whatever time we have before the service begins. Make that a discipline. Fifth, Keep a notepad nearby to jot down those things that come to your mind when you pray. You want great ideas and think through things? Commit to pray. And all of a sudden, you get all these ideas of what you're supposed to be doing, and that's what you go off into. So pray, have a notepad, write that down, get to that later. It's a great productivity tip, by the way. And then finally, use a prayer app for your smartphone or tablet. There's a lot of great ones out there on the App Store or Google Play. Download them. Help them keep your organized prayer life. So, those are some practical how-tos. Let's finish up Paul's third point in verses 12 through 13. Paul shows us that our prayers ought to have a view towards sanctification and our eventual glorification. We pick it up at verse 12. And may the Lord make you increase 
and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Why? Verse 13, so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. Paul is literally praying that their hearts would be enlarged, that they would grow in love for one another and for all. In a real sense, Paul is praying that their gospel witness would continue and grow. Here's the radical thing. Paul could have prayed, encouraged them and prayed for many other things. Paul could have prayed for the end of the opposition and persecution of this new church. He could have prayed for God to deliver them from the perpetual poverty that most Christians endured daily. He could have even prayed for greater doctrinal understanding. But what Paul chose to pray for was that they would have a greater capacity to love one another. How about praying for that? An increased capacity to love others. Let me ask you an honest question. When was the last time that was a priority in your prayer life? An increased capacity to love. That's what we see Paul praying for constantly in his prayers. If you read any of Paul's prayers, you're going to see that theme woven throughout. If that sounds countercultural today, it was radical then. Again, let's listen to Dr. D.A. Carson. <clears throat> Show me a church where the choir is known as the war department, where people divide over evangelistic strategies or over the color of the carpet, and I'll show you a church that has not been praying for love to abound for some time. Conversely, we will see profound spiritual renovation if by God's grace we make it our commitment not to put anyone down except on our prayer list. Hmm. Good word, excuse me. And the reason that Paul prays that their hearts would be enlarged was that so that they could be found blameless and established in the day of Christ's return. So, if our hearts are enlarged and strengthened and our allegiance to Christ grows day by day on that final day, we will have nothing to fear when we stand before Him. Our prayers ought to have this view of growth, this view of sanctification, because that's the view of life that really matters. And what really matters in this life is often determined about what the next life is. I was speaking to a young man from our church last week and just overwhelmed. The, the, the typical story, a young father, got a lot going on, work is so busy, overwhelmed. I says, look, if what you're doing now in 10 years, 15 years, does not matter, then that should help you prioritize what you're doing now. And so much of our lives are filled with things that ultimately do not matter, and they push out all the margin in our lives. And they're good things too, hobbies, leisures, interests, but they ultimately do not matter. So I said, you need to find out what God has called you to, the responsibilities He's entrusted to you, and let that be your north star, and everything else fall to the wayside. How much of our lives would be radically changed if we actually did an inventory and said, what are the things that really matter to the gospel and the kingdom and eternity? 
and that's what I'm going to pursue. Now, this doesn't mean we cannot have interests and leisures and pleasures. This doesn't mean we don't pray for those things. It does mean, though, that we steward our lives in proportion to eternal things, because that's what Paul modeled for us. So, we see that this prayer of Paul in 1 Thessalonians is fueled by his passion for his brothers and sisters in Christ. It's filled with gratitude to God for what he's doing amongst these people. It's filled with a desire to serve others, and its aim is to see the maturity of God's people so that they can stand before him blameless and established. How do our prayers stack up to that? Because that's what the Holy Spirit is inspiring His servant, our brother Paul, to write. This is how you pray. Of all the things that are out there, the few prayers recorded in here really help prioritize the things that we pray about. Now, let me just conclude by saying this. This is different from what I was praying about in China. I think there was a part of it, how cool this was. I was a bit of an adrenaline junkie, as any 19-year-old would be. This would be great. Or my prayers, I don't want to get caught because being thrown in a communist prison is not very good. Mom and dad wouldn't like that. Or all kinds of other things rather than a gospel perspective of, man, there are people who need your word, and the word of God is going to flourish, but it has to get to them. Lord, would you honor that? Now, I'm not saying the story I'm going to tell you is because I figured out the key to prayer, and then now everything worked correctly, but I'm also not, not saying that. I'm just finishing the story. Many more weeks into this, as you can imagine, deflated, growing, learning about this. I forget the location, but I think it was near Beijing, trying to get in. I couldn't get away. They got me. They got my backpack. They threw it on the x-ray machine, and I knew I was going to get caught. So as I'm standing there near the gentleman watching the screen, the monitor, I see my bag coming in, and it's very clear that I'm smuggling Bibles. You can see them. You can see the commentaries. You can see that, and it's done. And I'm discouraged because I'm going to get caught. These Bibles are not going to get in. But I also realize I need to convert my currency, and there's a bank right behind us. So I just ask, hey, i got to convert my currency… Is that the best place to do it? And as I say that, he looks up to me from the screen and says, yeah, you can get your currency converted there. And he looks at his wife and says, but they're not going to be open for another 15 minutes. But there's a great place that serves tea right outside. So if you get your tea first and then come in, they'll be open and you can convert your currency. And as he looks back down on the screen, my bag slides out the other end. He says, all right, you can go. Again, I'm not saying because I got the key now, things work that way, but it was a pretty amazing story. And by the way, 20 more years from now, I'm still going to be wanting my prayers to be more biblical, informed by God's Word. Well, that's it. We're at an end, and it is a great time to celebrate the Lord's Supper. What an appropriate thing to do, right? As we left one year, look to the new year, the Lord's Supper is a time of looking back on the redemption gotten to us by, by Christ, and it is a time of looking forward to His second coming, as well as thinking about the way we live now. So, this is a very, very appropriate way to begin 2017. Uh, if you need a gluten-free alternative, we're going to have that right here, and we have gluten-free juice and bread, so you just need to let your people know who are serving you that you need gluten-free, both bread and juice, okay? Uh, let's pray. And those of you who are serving, would you come on up? Father, we thank you for the richness of your Word. It is so full and so practical and so profound. 
It is true that we could search this for decades and decades and decades and decades and continue to learn about your character, to learn about how to go through our lives in a way that's honoring to you, but more importantly, to be transformed to be the image and likeness of Jesus Christ, your Son. Thank you that I am a part of a community of men and women that desire that as well. We pray, Lord, that we would be witnesses for you in this world, a church of 380 or more outreach programs, because we are seeking to supply what is lacking in people's faith. Help us to do that well in 2017, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.cccLH.org.